How are we to live in a land far away from home? Now that may seem a more real question to some of us than others. Perhaps we're born in a different country. Uh, We might feel sort of socially or culturally or physically just a long way from home. Or maybe just some of us might feel sort of economically, like we don't really belong. Well, actually, this this question that we're going to consider this morning has a far more significant meaning that is relevant to all of us and should be something that we're all deeply concerned about. For as Christians, we're all living in a strange land far away from home, the new creation. We're going to look at the book of Esther this morning, not the whole of it, although I would encourage you to to go away uh, and read the whole of it. It's an amazing story. I really love it. And it gives us a perspective as to how to answer that question. How are we to live in a strange land far away from home? I'm going to spend a bit of time just setting up the scene, and then sort of halfway through we're going to have our Bible reading, mixing things up a little bit, you know. So, just to give you a bit of context, so this is a historical book. It details historical events. Xerxes, the king of Persia, was a man recorded in history. He was the king about 2,500 years ago of an empire that stretched from India all the way across to sort of northern Africa. The biggest empire in the world at that time, probably the biggest empire this world has ever seen. Certainly the the wealthiest and most powerful empire. And the four main characters in the book of Esther are King Xerxes, Mordecai, Haman, and Esther. And we're going to trace their stories and seek to sort of understand their their circumstances uh, and highlight the contrast between King Xerxes and Haman and then Mordecai, representing God's people. If you've got a Bible... um, if you open it to the book of Esther, if you kind of roughly open your Bible in the middle, you're at Psalms, turn back two books, and you're in the book of Esther, uh, and we'll start in just chapter 1. Chapter 1 uh, and verse 3. In the third year of King Xerxes' reign, he gave a banquet, and all the princes, nobles, and military leaders from across the entire empire were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Later this year, the son of India's richest man is getting married, reportedly a, a kind of three-day event, sort of nine different dress codes to follow. It's going to have 200 elephants, and it's apparently estimated to be around $120 million. But that is nothing compared to King Xerxes' uh, banquet that he's having here. Nothing compared to the kind of lavish display of wealth. It's an event that lasts six months uh, in a place supported by marble pillars draped with fine and costly material on couches of gold and silver that are sat on uh, a pavement of precious and costly stains uh, with an endless supply of wine that he and his hundreds of guests drink from golden goblets, golden goblets that are each unique in design uh, and all served by beautiful women. And everyone who is anyone from around the whole Persian Empire is there. Just imagine being there. The vibrant colors and beautiful people, 
the taste of exotic food, the smell of wine and burning incense, the sound of music and laughter. Here is a man who knows how to party. It's extravagant. It really did show off the splendor and glory of his majesty. I don't know about you, but I'd have wanted to have been there uh, to enjoy the party and to be seen to be on Xerxes' side. There's only one slight hiccup, though. Queen Vashti uh, refuses to kind of come in and be ogled at by hundreds of insatiable drunk perverts. But not to worry. Xerxes has a plan. Um, he disposes of the queen. He then decrees, so sends a decree across the entire Roman Empire to suppress any wannabe strong independent women. And then has, um, rounds up thousands of beautiful virgins for a sex competition to find a replacement queen. Crisis averted. That's certainly a power play move by the most powerful man in the entire world. So Xerxes, the most powerful man in all of history, ruler of the largest and wealthiest empire of all time, the pinnacle of human worldly success, we may say. Untouchable, invincible, incomprehensible. The world watches in, on in awe, and perhaps some would have been led to consider the question, is this man God? Chapter 2, verse Five, we're introduced to another man living in Caesar, Mordecai. He's one of God's chosen people from the tribe of Benjamin and of noble blood as his grandfather Kish was the father of King Saul. Yet his ancestors at one time lived in Jerusalem, but the Babylonians came. Uh, they've been taken off into exile, brutally dragged from Jerusalem, Seventeen years later, the Babylonians were then defeated, overthrown by the Persians. Uh, But that didn't change things for Mordecai. He was an exile uh, in a foreign land, um, living a life of stark contrast to King Xerxes. He lived in constant fear that the secret of his family background and nationality would be exposed uh, and that many violent Persian nationalists would come after him. His uncle and aunt had died. And so he cared for his younger cousin before she was taken to be sexually exploited by the king. And as a result, every day he desperately paced back and forth near the courtyard of the harem where his cousin was being held, hoping to hear news of how she was doing and how she was getting on. On one occasion, um, he even foiled the plan, a plan to kill the king. Uh, And in a culture where loyalty is highly revered, you'd expect that Mordecai was exalted, but lo and behold, no honor uh, was given to him. He was overlooked. And instead, um, chapter 3, verse 1, after these events had occurred, King Xerxes gave honor to Haman, an Agite, um, a staunch enemy of God's chosen people. And it's no surprise, actually, that King Xerxes promotes Haman, for he's a more extreme mirror of of himself. He's wealthy, ruthless, an honor-obsessed megalomaniac. And when Mordecai refused to show him respect, uh, the respect that 
Haman believed that he deserved, he became enraged. And on finding out that Mordecai was one of God's chosen people, Haman wasn't content with just killing Mordecai. He decided, I'm going to issue a decree on the king's behalf to destroy, kill, and annihilate every single one of God's chosen people from the entire empire. Once the decree was sent out, his rage was placated, and he just sat guiltless, getting drunk with the king. You see, these three men represent two contrasting worlds. King Xerxes and Haman, on the one hand, unmatched power, wealth, glory, splendor, majesty, sexual satisfaction, ruthlessness. They've got it all. I guess they represent the sort of pinnacle of worldly success. Whereas Mordecai is insignificant, homeless, anxious, burdened, desperate, ignored. He's a representative of of God's chosen people. So the question we started with, how are we to live in a land far away from home? Well, from the book of Esther, so far embracing worldliness seems the more attractive option. Embracing wealth and power and success, worldly success, seems the more attractive option. Let's finally meet um, our final character, Esther. And the question we're left wondering is, how will she navigate these two contrasting worlds? Will she embrace worldliness or count herself as one of God's chosen people? Chapter 2 and verse 7. Life was hard for Hadassah from the very beginning. Like Mordecai, and the rest of God's chosen people, she and her parents lived in fear of their true identity being discovered. She was culturally confused. Her parents had named her Hadassah, a Hebrew name. But she was always referred to by a Persian name, Esther. At a young age, both her parents had died. And we're not told how or when, but we know that Esther was young enough to need to be cared for by her uncle Sorry, cousin Mordecai. And he took her in and looked after her as though she were his own daughter. We're told that she was beautiful uh, and had a lovely figure. But actually that just meant that she was rounded up uh, by one of King Xerxes' officials and taken to the harem to be part of his sex competition. The harem that she was taken into would have been complex to navigate, in one sense quite comfortable. A minimum of 12 months of good food and daily beauty treatments, six months with myrrh and oil, liberally applied through massages and skin treatments and hair care, all designed to soothe the kind of cracked and chapped skin that occurs in the harsh, dry climate of ancient Persia. That six months is then followed with perfumes made from exotic flowers and spices and cosmetics designed to enhance features and create an alluring aroma. Sounds pretty comfortable, doesn't it? But at the same time, when you put hundreds of virgins together who are all desperately hoping hoping for a foot up in society, the environment would have been one of fierce competition, rivalry, vulnerability, fear and longing. 
And then when your turn came to woo the king, the crushing anxiety of, will he like me and make me his queen? Or will I be cast uh, out and rejected into another part of the harem, forever as one of the king's concubines with no future or prospects? It would have been emotionally destructive. Identity destroyed, nothing more than a sex toy. Yet at the same time, there would have almost certainly been a distorted sense of loyalty towards King Xerxes, perhaps even feelings of affection or love. It was a totally trapping world. Esther appears to be compliant with the process, whether through fear or choice, we're not actually told. Uh, She pleased, though, the king's officials, and she was given the best room in the harem. And when her turn came in chapter 2, verse 17, to meet the king, the king was attracted to her, more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval, more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther won. She won the king's favor. She did it. So back to our original question, Will Esther embrace worldliness or count herself as one of God's chosen people? Well, I think the answer is probably quite clear at this point. She's embraced Persian identity. She has won for herself her position as the most important woman in the entirety of the world. Or has she? We're now going to have our reading. We're going to pick up the story in chapter 3 and verse 12. So if you've got a a Bible open. I'm going to read from chapter 3, verse 12. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, governors of the various provinces, the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Young and old women and little children, on a single day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province, and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gates because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. With fasting, weeping and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and the eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. 
she sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth. But he would not accept them. Then Aunt Esther summoned Hafak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and he ordered and she ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact money amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for the annihilation which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. So just in summary, Haman's decree has been sent out. It's been proclaimed in all the um, empire, and he then sits back and gets drunk with King Xerxes. There's a real state of mourning and despair amongst the Jews. Uh, And then we have this exchange, don't we, between um, Esther and Mordecai, a sort of individual being sent backwards and forwards, which culminates with Mordecai saying in verse 12, Esther, just because you're queen, don't think you'll escape the genocide. Haman will ruthlessly hunt out all of God's people. And if you remain silent, well, relief and deliverance, it will come from another place at another time. But maybe, don't you think perhaps you have been brought to this position for a time such as this to be able to Plead with the king on the behalf of God's chosen people, of whom you are part. What a cliffhanger. What, what is Esther going to do? What is her, what, how is she going to identify herself? Is she Queen Esther, queen over the Persian Empire, or is she going to identify herself as Hadassah, cousin of insignificant Mordecai? Who is she going to side with? And the reason I spent so long um, trying to kind of unpack the situation and the contrast is because I wanted to make you realize and help us to realize that Esther doesn't really have a difficult decision to make. It seems a kind of no-brainer, really, doesn't it? Choose wealth, power, and worldliness, comfort. 
What is she going to do? Chapter 4, verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. What? You know, why would Esther choose to be associated with God's chosen people? Does she feel sorry for them as they're fasting and weeping and wailing, lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is she acting out of pity or camaraderie? Why? She's got everything possible uh, that she could want, worldly comfort and success, security, power. Verse 17, so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he sentenced her to death. No, he was pleased to see her and held out the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom and it will be given to you. (laughs) That seems unexpected, doesn't it? Deliverance? Why does Xerxes offer that? Well, perhaps he's not actually the one in charge after all. We're going to trace the Um, Sorry, we're not going to trace the entirety of the rest of the story, but that is exactly what God's chosen people receive, deliverance. But we're still left with the question, why? Why did Esther make a seemingly ridiculous decision? The odds were massively stacked against her. Why did Esther choose to be associated with God's people? Well, she realizes that she can trust that God will bring deliverance. For he is in control. Chapter 4, verse 14 again. Mordecai says, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for God's chosen people will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What Mordecai says prompts Esther to look back and remember all of those coincidences for it just so happens that king xerxes held a competition and she was beautiful and she was the king was attracted to her it just so happened that mordecai was in the right place at the right time and fought the plot to kill the king it just so happened that haman a violent hater of god's people was honored instead of mordecai it just so happened that haman uh, used dice to decide the day and time of the genocide which um, of when it would occur. And we can read in Proverbs 16.33 that the dice is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It just so happened that Esther was chosen as queen for such a time as this. And beyond where we've got to in the story, it just so happened that the king couldn't sleep one night and so had the book of records read to him. And it just so happens that of all the thousands of records, the record that was read was of the rescue that Mordecai provided, to which King Xerxes realized Mordecai hadn't been honored. 
And it just so happens that the next morning, Haman comes in to see the king, uh, having built this enormous stake, which he hopes to kill Mordecai on. And yet, it just so happens that he then, instead of leaving to sentence Mordecai, is actually told to leave and parade Mordecai around the streets dressed in the king's royal robe on the king's royal horse, uh, shouting, this is what is done for the man who the king delights to honor. It just so happens when the king found out that Haman planned to kill the queen and all of God's chosen people, that he had Haman killed on that stake that he had erected for Mordecai to be killed on. It just so happened that Mordecai was given the king's signet ring and promoted to the second in the kingdom, and so able to write a decree uh, sealed by the king to allow God's people to defend themselves when attacked. It just so happened that as a result of this new decree, that great, ca- uh, great fear came over all the Persian people. And they helped God's people, and many of them became members of God's chosen people. It just so happened that on the day that Haman had uh, planned for the genocide, not one of God's chosen people was killed. But instead, 75,000 of God's enemies came under God's judgment and were killed. It just so happens that 500 years later, in an insignificant town to another insignificant virgin, the man Jesus was born. It just so happened that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, God's chosen King, and the fulfiller of all of the Old Testament prophecies. It just so happened that Jesus lived the perfect life keeping the whole law of God so that we could stand blameless before God. Uh, It just so happens that Jesus chose to take on the sin that separated us from God and paid the penalty for it on the cross. It just so happened that Jesus rose again three days later, proving that he had defeated the devil and that death was not the end. It just so happened that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and that he will come again, to judge the living and the dead. Esther was not trusting in coincidence. In fact, there's, there's no such thing as it just so happened. Esther was trusting in the living, eternal creator, sustainer, governor, and ruler of the universe. The one who will bring relief and deliverance for God's chosen people. Whether Esther remains silent or not. There's no such thing as it just so happened. It's God ordains that. God ordains that Esther would come to the right place at the right time to bring deliverance for her people. God ordains that Jesus would come and die on a cross to bring salvation for his people. For those of us here who are not a Christian, The book of Esther paints a clear picture of reality. For worldliness, saying, I'm in charge of my personal success, my wealth, my power, my sex, that may seem attractive and perhaps may seem fulfilling. But the reality is, is that you're not in charge. God is. He always has been and he always will be. And one day when he returns to judge, that will be abundantly clear. And those who have lived for themselves will face God's wrath, eternal death. So stop fighting him and accept him as your king uh, and saviour. 
and you'll find uh, true fulfillment in him. So that original question, how do we live in a strange land far away from home? Well, that's all of us who are part of God's chosen people as we wait for Jesus to return to bring us home. How do we live as we're being exiled or ostracized at work or amongst our friends or family because we're living for something different? We'll trust that God has brought deliverance through an unlikely servant, the Lord Jesus. How are we to live? How are we to live as we see people who are overtly living for worldliness, yet being promoted ahead of us and seemingly treated better than us? And things just aren't going well for us and we're feeling tempted by the lure of worldliness. Well, trust that God has brought deliverance through an unlikely servant, the Lord Jesus. How are we to live as we battle illness, cancer, poor mental health, the death? It's unfair because non-Christians that we know of are just living long, healthy, uncomplicated, blessed lives. And we feel tempted to question if God is in control and give up. Or trust that God has brought deliverance through an unlikely servant, the Lord Jesus. God brought deliverance for his people in exile through his unlikely servant, Esther. But that was only temporary. But God has brought deliverance for all eternity, for all his people, throughout all of history, through his unlikely servant, the son of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Life now may be hard. Trusting in Jesus isn't a kind of fix-all solution right now. It might feel like there is no deliverance, but, and that worldliness might seem attractive, but stand firm. Let nothing move you. For God works in all things for the good of those who love him, and he is faithful to his promises. He has, and he will bring, relief and deliverance for his people. So trust him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you so much for your abundant control. We are so sorry for when we fight against you and, and seek to put ourselves in charge. Please forgive us. And when life just perhaps seems unfair um, and we look out at the world and people seem to be so abundantly blessed, those that are not trusting in you, Please help us not to be uh, tempted to, to join in with worldliness. But help us to trust you and to look forward to that day when we will be delivered. Thank you that you have promised that, that we know that that future is secure because you have secured that deliverance for us through the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross. So please help us to trust you and to live for you wholeheartedly. Amen.